It's good to see you all. It's good to be with you all. My name is John. I lead uh, Southlands Church, which is in Santa Ana, about 20 minutes south of here. We've been up for about two years, and it's been a fun ride, an exciting ride for us. I'm going to speak this morning on gospel-shaped preaching, which is exciting for me. I would love to pray as we get into that. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the gift of declaring your word to people, whether that's one-on-one or in small groups, whether that's out and about in the supermarket or in a park, just telling people about who you are, whether that's on a stage or whether that's in a home. We just thank you, Lord, for the gift of proclaiming your word. And we ask you, Lord, that you would put your gospel deeply, deeply in our souls. It would be the, it would be the thing that we eat be the thing that we drink, the thing that we breathe, so that when we are when we are prodded in any way, we quickly have a response that is from the gospel. That everything we see in life reminds us of the gospel. Every truth that we hear points us back to the gospel. Every false gospel we hear reminds us of the true gospel. That is much better. I pray, Lord, that you would use these next few minutes to equip us so that we might equip your people, they might live into the gospel, become a gospel people, shape of the gospel. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, I said the word gospel a lot of times in there. We're going to be using <laughs> we're going to be using that word a lot, and we have been using that word a lot already. We are uh, we're talking about being a gospel shaped people. That's kind of the gospel shaped leadership, gospel shaped everything this week. And so I I'm given the task of doing gospel shaped preaching. And I'll be honest with you, I would much rather be preaching right now than talking about preaching. But I'm going to talk about preaching so that hopefully it will equip you as preachers. And then I may spill out into preaching every once in a while if I have to, but that may or may not happen. We will see. All right. I I thought it would be helpful just to begin by making an observation, and that observation is that everything anyone ever says comes out of a gospel. We're always believing some kind of good news, and that is what motivates us. When you cheer for the Padres, you are believing a gospel right now about a supposed meaning behind People playing with a ball and wooden sticks, very fragile gospel. But anything that anyone says ever, you don't want to put your hope in something so fragile like that. But anything anyone ever says comes out of a gospel. What are some of the gospels that people right now believe? What are some of the the good news messages that are kind of swirling around in our culture you can do anything if you just set your mind to it. There's a great Key and Peel video about that. Yes, next. Who, who said something else? What's that? Live your truth. You are the final determiner of truth. If you live that out, it'll be great for you. Yes. Family is everything. Yeah, that's right. All roads lead to God. doesn't matter what you do as long as you're sincere because God kind of takes everyone who tries anything. Ever. Trust your feelings, trust your heart. Great advice, isn't it? Great advice. <laughs> God will never give you more than you can handle. <laughs> That's awesome. Sometimes when people preach the gospel, sometimes when people preach the gospel or when they're speaking the gospel, it is the, it is the genuine gospel that Jesus born of a virgin, baptized by John. 
did his ministry of destroying the devil, proclaiming good works, doing kind things, declaring God's word, died on the cross for our sins, rose from the dead for our justification, will return in glory so we might be redeemed for God's praise. Sometimes that's what it comes out of. But usually when people talk, it's, aren't I cool? Don't you like me? Aren't I amazing? In, uh, in Tim Keller's uh, book, Sinner Church, you guys read that? Did anyone read that? Okay, that's a good book. And, and one of the things that he says and that's really powerful is he says, we all as preachers, as teachers, as leaders in the church, we need to be aware that we will believe gospels as well that are not actually the gospel. And we will sometimes live and teach those gospels accidentally, even when we're on a platform, even when we're in a small group. We will say things that are coming from a heart that is not actually shaped by the gospel. So what are the things that maybe tempt you? What subtle messages can creep into your own heart that you think, ah, yeah, sometimes I act, that's really what's coming out of me? Anyone want to be brave? What may you accidentally proclaim as the gospel? What's the good news you might believe? If we try harder, we'll have more success. Yeah, if it's got to be, it's up to me. Yes, faithfulness always equals fruitfulness, and we will always see that happen. Great. Mm -hmm. Anyone else brave out there? Yeah, God will always answer my prayer exactly how I want it to happen. That's great. Yeah, if you're suffering, that's anti-gospel, or it's either... My fault in something like that. I think sometimes uh, one of the things that Tim Keller points out, we are right as a church. We sometimes will we'll say stuff like that. If you know yourself, you'll have personal peace. Some of us fall into that trap. Knowing yourself is the ultimate thing. There's a bunch of other ones that we could list, but I'm not going to. Before we get into gospel-shaped preaching, well, the first thing that I think that we need to do is we need to understand what is the actual gospel. And I think Alan did a great job of starting us out on that, on that point. I, what, I, what I think is really critical is that we need to become a gospel-saturated people, the kind of people who are really transformed by it, who have a very vast understanding, big, growing, developing, maturing understanding of the actual gospel if we would like to be gospel-shaped preachers and teachers. So I want to just begin with a little bit of an exercise together. What is the gospel? So we've, we've identified a little bit of what it's not, any of the things that the culture around us says, but how would you describe what the gospel is? And, and I'm a teacher at heart. Maybe you can tell that already. I would love to have another 30 minutes right now where I could ask each of you to write down the gospel on a piece of paper. And then we could just publicly embarrass ourselves by reading it out. If you're going to answer that question, maybe you want to write it down. Maybe you're an introvert and you think that way. That's great. Maybe you want to write it down. If you, someone were to ask you, what is the gospel, how would you answer? So let's give 10 seconds. What is the gospel? Think about it. Okay, Alan just, just told us last night, great answer to the question. Who wants to start? Who wants to give us an answer? What is the gospel? Now you're nervous. You don't want to be wrong. 
Great. Great. Okay. That's awesome. Who who did all that? Oh, great. <laughs> Wasn't sure who we were talking about for a second there. I'm, I'm kidding around. <laughs> I'm kidding around. <laughs> <laughs> My wife gets nervous for me. <laughs> it's awesome. I love that. Let Kimmy answer. Great, Kimmy. That's right. Now, yeah, I, I was preaching to her a lot last night. So the, um, I have done, yeah, I have done this exercise a lot of times in my life, and it comes out of a, out of a funny position that I was, I was in one time. Uh, when I was in college, one of my pastors asked me the same question. We were in small groups, and he said, pretend, let's do a little bit of a, a game. Pretend like you're leading your neighbor to Christ, like you're the guy in your small group. You're going to lead him to Christ right now. And, and so I preached the gospel to him, right? And when I got done, um, I was like, you know, how was that? And he was like, it was great, but I wouldn't be saved. Because you just didn't say the gospel. And I was like, well, what did I leave out? He's like, you didn't say sin. I was like, oh, well, that's significant. I guess I should have mentioned that, right? It's definitely possible for us to proclaim something. I've done this same exercise multiple times. And what's interesting to me, you gave a great answer, Ben. Um, what, what's interesting to me is very often, there's certain very significant things that we forget about. Number one, Jesus is Lord. Almost always people forget that one. And I'm like, what the heck? Like, how did we forget the fact that Jesus is Lord? Another one that's huge that no one ever mentions is that God has glory. That the gospel is about God's glory. And almost every time when I do this exercise, no one even mentions God. I'm like, what the heck? Like, what is wrong with this? Why, why do we fall in these traps? And, and what often happens, I find, is that our gospel ends up being more and more and more about me and the benefits that come to me as a person, rather than who God is, describing who God is, who Jesus is, what Jesus has done for us, magnifying and ultimately telling me this whole story is really about God. It isn't that good news because it benefits me. Right? It is amazing that who God is and who God has revealed himself to me to be on the cross, through the resurrection, through the ascension, through the spirit, through the spread of the church, through Jesus' return, through judgment, all of that tells me who God is and I get to benefit as well. I want to pass out a little piece of paper for you. This is an exercise. I've got two lovely assistants. One is a bit lovelier than the other. <laughs> if, that's right if, she, if Shannon was here she'd oh my gosh can you imagine we'd be making money all right uh, <laughs> working the circus tour all the time it'd be amazing I I just did a little um I did a little search online for the gospel of. So I, I, what, what I think we need, if we're going to be gospel-shaped preachers, the first thing that we need to do is develop and be developing our understanding of the gospel. So I did just a, a quick exercise for you. In what ways does the New Testament describe the gospel in a very summary form? And I just searched gospel of as one way of summarizing it. This is not expansive. This is not the most amazing thing in the world. But I think it's interesting. Once you take 15 seconds or so, and just scan through it. These are just a list of verses that use the phrase gospel of, and then they have another word after that to say, this is how I'm summarizing the gospel. So take a few seconds and scan it, please. It is two-sided. 
It is two-sided, so you want to go to the back side also. All right, just look at that first handout if you can, the gospel of one, and have some self-control. Now look at the second one. All right. Okay, so for those of you who have scanned through it already, what are some of your observations? What do you notice about the way that the different New Testament authors talk about the gospel? If they're, if, if they're using the phrase gospel of whatever as a way of summarizing the gospel, how are they thinking of the gospel? Multifaceted. Okay, great. What else? It pretty much is all about the revealing of who God is. It's a lot of gospel of God, gospel of God's son, gospel of the Lord Jesus, gospel of Jesus. A lot of those. Yeah, okay, it's always being stated. It's a declaration of who God is. It's a declaration of what God has done. Great. What else do you notice? It's all stuff that we receive. Yeah, so the underlying word that we would have there is grace. This is a gracious gift of God's revelation. It's a, it's a revelatory thing that God does for us, whether we wanted it or not. He just did, is it and does it. Great. As you go through a list like this, maybe you find yourself saying, huh, you know, I don't really emphasize that aspect. Do you see anything there where you're like, you know what, this is probably a bit of a miss on my part. This is an area where I need to strengthen. This is an area where I need to grow. You don't need to say anything. You don't have to declare it right now what it is. But what I would like to encourage you to do, if you're going to become a gospel-shaped teacher or preacher, I would encourage you to take active steps towards understanding, appreciating, and loving the gospel more and more. We were just reading Psalm 111 this morning, and it says, all God's works are studied by those who delight in them. And I think that's just a great thing. That one of the God's primary work, so to speak, is the gospel itself. And we who delight in the gospel should study it and grow in it. Do you have a plan? Do you have a plan for studying and growing in the gospel? Or do you feel like, you know what, I studied that when I was in my teens or my 20s or my 30s, and I'm kind of done with that, I'm on to bigger and better things now. And I would just like to challenge you to come back. Come back to the gospel. So a few books you might want to read, The Apostolic Preaching of the Cross is a good one. Leon Morris's book, The Atonement, is a good one. God is the Gospel by Piper is a good one. The Explicit Gospel by Tim, uh, what's his name, Matt Chandler is a good one. Just like to encourage you to do that. The second thing that maybe you want to do is just a bit of a Bible study. So you could take this sheet and meditate your way through these passages and try to grow and expand your recognition and appreciation of all these facets of what God has done for us. That second handout is different. I wrote this 15 years ago, so please don't shoot me if you don't like it. I was young and immature. But anyway, what I did, uh, what I did in that handout is I just went through all the Old Testament books and said, here are ways that the gospel is pointed to in the Old Testament. So maybe explicit prophecies of Jesus or types or shadows or whatever of who Jesus is. This is a developing picture of what the gospel eventually would be when Christ came. And so maybe you're preaching through a book of the Old Testament right now and you're trying to figure out how do I get to Jesus? 
This could be a clue for that. Or maybe you're just saying, I want to expand my own understanding of who Jesus is and what the gospel is. This would be a way for you to walk through the Bible and expand it. Great. All right. Next point, that's step number one. If you are going to become a gospel preacher, you're welcome, Kevin. If you're going to become a gospel preacher, step number one is grow and deepen your love for the gospel. Step number two, if you're going to become a gospel preacher or a teacher, what do you think it would be? What's the, what's the next best step to become a good gospel preacher? It would be to become someone who? Good sneakers, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Thank you, bud. $4 locals, there you go, that's... Anyway, um, you're going to live it. It's super sad that the number of preaching books that are out there that don't emphasize the fact that you need to live this if you're going to be qualified. How many times have we been reminded over the last few years, for example, that people totally weren't qualified even though they were amazingly knowledgeable? Don't become one of those people. Don't become one of those people. Can you think of people that, one of, the, one of the things that I think should be true is that we listen to people because we know they live the gospel. It's one of the things that I love about Advance. I don't listen to and appreciate Alan's preaching because he's an amazing preacher, even though he is. I listen to him and appreciate him because he lives the gospel. He loves his wife well. He loves his kids well. He lives it out. He talks to his neighbors about the gospel. I watch that happen, and that gives me a sense of confidence that he's not just spouting words right now. He's preaching truth that he lives. Can, we, we live in a culture where we're very disconnected from the preachers and teachers that we listen to all the time, and that's a travesty, and I think that's actually a really significant danger that we're not as aware of that we sh- as we should be. Can you think of any of those public platform types of preachers where you, where you really do listen to them primarily because you know they live it? Can you think of anyone like that? What's that? Tim Keller? Yeah, most recently with his bout with cancer, you can say, well, okay, wait a second, that guy... He really lives this stuff. He really believes this stuff. I would say the same thing is true of John Piper. Like, he's not a great preacher. No offense. He's one of my favorites. He's just not a great preacher. But I listen to him because I know he lives it. He believes at his core exactly what he's communicating to you. And I want us to be that kind of a people. When we have someone, you know, that we're going to put someone up on a stage or something like that, I want it to be because we know they live the truth that they are going to proclaim. And so my question to you is, do you have a pattern of living the truth that you're about to proclaim? What, what's your sermon preparation pattern that gets you to the point where you can say, I've actually been living this all week, and now I'm going to proclaim it. Or I've been living this all year or for the last five years, and now I'm going to proclaim it. And when you do it, it's going to come out in a very different way, and your people are going to receive it in a very different way. You're going to say, that was, that was good. That was different, what you were doing there. Thank you for that. All right, Uh, there's a great quote from Robert Murray Machane. He says, the greatest need of my people is my own holiness. I think that's true. All right, so let's get into the nitty-gritty. If step one for us to become gospel-shaped preachers is to understand and believe and love the gospel, then step two is for us to live it, then step three would be to write good sermons or teaching outlines or whatever you do. All right, so 
your gospel is going to shape the way that you write a sermon no matter what. The thing that you believe most powerfully, that's going to shape it. And so any of those things, the anti-gospels that we mentioned before, those can come through in your preaching as well. And you find, you find out later, like, oh, shoot, I keep preaching moralistic things. I must have a pretty moralistic gospel, or I must, you know, really believe this or that. And I, one of the things that um, I've just been recently made aware of is in our culture right now, we're very much about self-discovery is like the biggest idea of salvation. I can just understand who I am. And the temptation, I think, in gospel preaching is to make almost all of my sermons about finding your identity. And there's a danger there. Because if I keep preaching about your identity and your identity and your identity, I can subtly fall into the trap of Americanism, which is, and if you can just figure out who you are, that's the gospel. That's not actually the gospel. The gospel is finding out who God is. And then, oh, I'm also something in relation to God. Great, that's wonderful. But I want to make sure I'm pointing people to God. All right, so if the real gospel is about the, re- the generosity of God revealed in the personal work of Jesus Christ, magnified on the cross through the resurrection and returning, how is that going to shape the way that we prepare sermons? All right, step number one, pray. One of my favorite quotes, I really hope we have this one up here, but you guys like B.B. Warfield? Gosh, people, where are you people? Okay. You don't have to love every doctrine. You can just love the good ones. All right, so some, someone ripped on B.B. Warfield. B.B. Warfield's an amazing dude, people, okay? You don't know the guy? He's an awesome guy. I mean, tragic, crazy, tragic story. Anyway, I'm not going to tell the whole thing. All right. He says this, sometimes we hear it said that 10 minutes on your knees will give you a truer, deeper, more operative knowledge of God than 10 hours over your books. Okay, you, people hear that. What is the appropriate response? Then 10 hours over your books on your knees? Huh? He got you, didn't he? All right, we'll say it one more time. Sometimes we hear it said that 10 minutes on your knees will give you a truer, deeper, more operative knowledge of God than 10 hours over your books. What is the appropriate response than 10 hours over your books on your knees? Why should you turn from God when you turn to your books or feel that you must turn from your books in order to turn to God? I think that's the kind of people that we want to become. The kind of people who are studying God's word really, really deeply while on our knees deeply in prayer. And when we're deeply, deeply in prayer, we also have the book open in front of us and we're coming back and forth. God is speaking to us in his word and we're speaking it back to him and we're going through our text preparation, all that kind of stuff, deeply immersed in prayerful study and studyful prayer. That's gospel-shaped preaching, is that we're expecting God to speak, and we want him to glorify himself, so we are going to pray. And so, do you have a pattern of prayer? What's your pattern of prayer as you sermon prep? I, I just, it came to me when I was a much younger man, and I felt like, okay, I just need to, at a minimum, pray for the same amount of minutes as I plan to preach. Okay. Great. Whether that's in one big chunk or that's kind of spread out over the week or whatever it is. And I thought, that's helpful. It was pretty hard when I was doing three-hour lectures, but, you know, whatever. It was rough. All right. 
Step number two, live it, which we've mentioned already. And I think that this is really critical. If I am preparing my sermon, it needs to start on Monday. When I start meditating on the text and I'm already letting it soak into me and I want to live it all week before me because when I get to actually writing my notes for my sermon, I want it to be something that's living in me already. And a quick illustrative story of that, I was was teaching a preaching class one time and one of my students gave a little sermon at five minutes on... uh, Jesus is our living hope from 1 Peter 1. And he said, Jesus is our living hope. And he said the word living hope like 20 times. And when he got done, it's my job to critique him. And I was like, hey, what's the living hope? And he was like, um, uh, it's, a living, it's a living hope. <laughs> I was like, no good, buddy. <laughs> no good. What happened is he had not actually thought about it, like he hadn't meditated on it, he hadn't lived it all week. And what would have happened, what could have happened much better, if he had meditated on Monday about a living hope and been soaking on that, then when he walked out the door later that day, he would have seen all kinds of alternative hopes out there. You know, women are offered beauty products that they will never age or whatever, and yet they do, right? We are told that the American economy will never go down, and yet... It does. We are told that banks will never fail, and yet they do. There's all kinds of hopes out there that we're told to put our hope in, and they fail all the time. And if I walk out the door with that meditating on the true living hope, then I walk back to Scripture and I say, Jesus, your hope is undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for me. It's not going to (laughs) fail. That's great. But if I'm not meditating on it and I'm not living it throughout the week, then I'm going to show up on Sunday and I'm just going to say some words and people are going to be like, he doesn't know what he's talking about, does he? That's not good. Okay. Great. Now, actually sermon writing. I want to get down to sermon writing. Here we go. As you're writing a sermon, does the gospel shape the way that you write sermons? And what I wanted to do is just provide you with three different ways to make sure that you're integrating the gospel into the structure of your sermon. So here are three strategies. Uh, In a previous generation, it was the case that people thought, hey, you know what, I can just kind of preach whatever I want. And then at the end, if I tell people the four spiritual laws, it was a gospel sermon. So I tell them, here are four principles for living a happy and healthy marriage. And at the end, I say, God loves you. He has a wonderful plan for your life. But sin separates from from God. Jesus is the bridge that covers that distance. And if you trust him, you can go to heaven. I preach the gospel. That's not what I'm talking about when I talk about gospel-shaped preaching, and I'm sure you're not thinking that either. But there will be times, I think, when we want to preach about marriage, we want to give a topical sermon or something like that, and I would like to argue that you can still have that be a very gospel-centered sermon. You just need to go about it in a gospel-centered kind of a way, and here's an example of that. So do you ever use the creation, fall, redemption, consummation paradigm? Show of hands, anyone? Okay, so creation, fall, redemption, consummation. So it's just essentially the storyline of Scripture is that God has created everything. We have fallen into sin. Christ has brought redemption. He will eventually consummate all things and restore everything in the end. And if I use that as a framework, as a, as a paradigm, or as a structure for my sermons, I can, I can almost be guaranteed that I'm going to be able to weave the gospel in no matter what. So as an example, if I wanted to give you four principles for a happy and healthy marriage, I can tell you creation, fall, redemption, consummation, right? God created your marriage. God created your marriage actually to be a reflection of a much deeper reality, which is Christ in the church, Right? 
But the fall happened. The fall happened, and your marriage is hard, isn't it? Your marriage is hard because every human falls into sin. We all sin, and we get on each other's nerves, we aggravate each other, and we need redemption. Fortunately, Jesus came to redeem each of us individually and also to restore marriages through the gospel, that Christ died to bring forgiveness into your marriage. And then also he rose from the dead to bring hope into your marriage. And you can actually see your marriage reflect more and more of God's original intent as it's remade through the gospel. Ultimately, though, you will not be married for all of eternity. Your marriage is momentary. It is being used by God right now to point you to a much better marriage, which is the consummated marriage of Christ and his bride. We're pointing in that direction. I can preach that way, and if I do a much better job of that over a lot more minutes, I can preach the gospel, and I can have to be a gospel-infused message. If I don't do it that way, and I just preach a few principles and tack on a little quick gospel vignette at the end, my trouble is that people are not going to get how the gospel integrates into everyday life. Either they're going to say, good, I've got my principles, that's all I really cared about anyway. Or they're going to say, cool, I got saved, I have no idea how to live. Right? And we don't want either of those things. What I want is for my people to be able to meditate on the gospel and say, how does this affect the way that my marriage goes? How does it give me better expectations for marriage? How does it give me a better hope for my marriage? So, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. That's a nice structure that you can start with. Uh, Another strategy that you could use for gospel preaching would be what I call Keller's beeline to the gospel. So, um, it has been famously said that Spurgeon said something he never said, which is, I take my texts and make a beeline to the cross. He didn't say that, but he said things similar to that. But Tim Keller took that ball and ran with it, I think. And basically what I see in most of Tim Keller's preaching is awesome stuff. Basically, he says, I'm going to take my text and I'm going to use maybe a version of Christian Fall Redemption, or I'm going to use a slightly different paradigm, which is you have a desire. You serve a certain God to get that desire. That God will fail you always fail you, but there is a better God out there. And if you will simply submit to that God, he will transform your desires so that you love him first and that's that other thing in a second place. And he's kind of always using a structure, I find, always using a structure like that. Or if he's in the Old Testament, he's pretty much doing the same thing every time, which is he finds his Old Testament person, tells you whatever he wants to tell you about that person, and then he tells you that Jesus is the True and better, X, Y, Z. So we're with Adam and Eve. Jesus is the true and better Adam. We're with Cain and Abel. Jesus is the true and better Cain. We're with Noah. He's the true and better whoever it is. You know, those kinds of things. You're saying, okay, I'm going to preach the gospel through that. Any of you familiar with Tim Keller and his preaching style? Have you heard him do that before? You can do it as well. That, That second handout that I gave you is in part a way to get you there. If you would like more concrete examples of that, I wrote uh, like nine Bible studies on how to preach Christ through different Old Testament books of the Bible, and I'm happy to share that with you. Okay. Ooh. I want to make a quick caveat. No, I'm not going to do it. No. It's no time for caveating. We're already late. 
All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna finally end with just my own my own approach. And um, so we're doing a few different kind of preaching cohorts. Where we're talking about some skill development for how to become uh, more effective communicators. Uh, my mentor is in one of those groups right now, Mr. Chris Knight. Do you like mentorship in pretty much anything theological? Chris is your man. Um, <laughs> okay, so. My, my main method um, for preaching is expository. And so I like to go through books of the Bible, verse by verse, and just walk my way through text by text. I was raised in the whole counsel of God kind of church movement. And it was just, that was our thought, was that we we're going to be able to point people to Jesus through any text of scripture that we're in. So that's my starting point. Within that starting point, I try to train preachers with three specific skills. And if they use those three specific skills, I believe that they can, they're always going to get themselves down to the gospel. Skill number one that I try to train them in is what I call a big idea statement. And a big idea statement is simply this. I take my text and I ask two questions. Question number one is, what is this talking about? And question number two is, why was it written? And that second question is the much more important question because every time I ask the question, why was it written, I take myself deeper and deeper and deeper into understanding the real motivation of this author. And what would you guess is at the root of all motivation? The gospel, great. So every time we (laughs) dig deeper and deeper and deeper, it's gonna get into who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us and what it reveals about the character and nature of God. And so I'm going to go deeper and deeper and deeper, and eventually I'm going to discover the gospel. And then after I've done that, after I've come up with a big idea statement, I try to find myself a map, and a map simply tries to take my audience on a journey from where they currently are in their understanding or the problem that they're facing right now through into the gospel truth that I'm finding in this passage and then into a section where they're going to take some action based on it. So the imagery is taking someone on a car drive. I want to catch them, put them in the car. After I put them in the car, I want to drive them to the gospel. Once I've shown them the gospel, I want to send them on their way with some kind of action, some kind of response that they need to take. Does that make sense? Those are the two only skills that I teach, are only the only two skills that we tend to focus on. And I think that if you use those two skills, you're, you're going to be able to get to the gospel in every single text that you do. And so I decided to take at random a shot. I just opened the Bible at random while preparing my notes, and I came to Colossians. Four, two. Um, Colossians 4.2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Okay? If that was my text, how do I get to the gospel? Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Is this a text about prayer? Not primarily. No text is really ultimately about anything other than who God is. And if I believe who God is, then it's going to motivate my life in a certain way. And so continue, sorry, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. I'm going to make an observation first. The first thing that I observe is that the word thanksgiving is in there. And I want to unfold that. Okay, why did Paul use the word thanksgiving? He's telling people, hey, as you pray, be thankful. Why does, God say, or why does Paul say, be thankful? He could have said, continue in prayer with faith, continue in prayer with hope, continue in prayer with love, continue in prayer with endurance. Why does he say Thanksgiving? What do you think the answer is? 
It's because of who God is. Either the answer is God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So thank you, God, despite what you give in answer to my prayer, I'm yours. That's a gospel sense of gratitude. The other way that I could answer that question is by going through the text of Colossians and discovering all the other places that Paul uses the word thanks and thanksgiving. In almost every single one of them, it's in the context of him telling you something about the gospel. Be grateful for who God is. Be grateful for what Christ has done. Be grateful for the cross. Be grateful for the resurrection. Be grateful for salvation. Be grateful for the inheritance that you've received. All of it's coming out of the gospel. And so when he climaxes in chapter four and says, keep praying with thanksgiving, you are supposed to have known already because you've read the rest of the book. He's saying, be grateful for the gospel. No matter what God does for you in answer to this prayer, you're his own. And he is who he is. And that's good news no matter what's going on in your life. And that's going to lead me, that's going to enable me to have gospel-centered, gospel-shaped preaching no matter what, because the answer underneath any question about why is always going to be who God is. All right, the final thing that I wanted to mention, this is not something you're going to hear at a Gospel Coalition conference, so hold on. When the New Testament authors preach the gospel, they say something about it. I'm sorry, when, when Jesus or when Paul or when Peter or John or James preaches the gospel, they expect something to happen. I preach the gospel not in words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit's power. There are five to seven different places where Paul himself will say, when I preach, the difference between my preaching and false gospels is that when I preach, stuff happens. He's not saying that from a cocky standpoint. He's saying, if you proclaim Jesus is Lord, then the heavens are going to open and the Spirit's going to come through. And when the wind is blowing, things start to move. If you don't see that happening, you're probably not proclaiming the gospel yet. And so what he would say to you is, you must preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and expect things to happen. That's why when Jesus preached, people said he preaches not as one of our scribes, he preaches with authority. When Jesus would drive out a demon and they would say, that's preaching. He's proclaiming the kingdom of God. He's proclaiming his authority. He's proclaiming his lordship. He's proclaiming the fact that he is the king and things happen. And we'll do the same thing. And that's what I, I think that's the thing that we need to be growing in. Alan mentioned it last night, which is super helpful, that we want to see new power. We need to be the kind of people who are praying into that. I want to be a person of prayer, preacher of prayer, so that when I preach, God does stuff. And I can say, yeah, I proclaim the gospel today. Jesus showed up, and he changed lives. And I expect him to show up. I expect him to move. Because he's alive. If Jesus isn't alive, well, then he would be silent. Because dead people don't talk. But if he's alive, then he'll keep doing what he's always done. He'll keep talking. He'll keep healing. He'll keep driving demons out. He'll keep restoring families. He'll keep restoring you. He'll keep saving you. He'll keep forgiving you because he's alive according to the gospel that we proclaim.